Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Peter Coyote, hosted by Steve Heilig, as they discuss Peter's new book, The Rain Man's Third Cure. Now let me introduce Steve Heilig. And I realized in compiling this that uh, so often we just take for granted that people know Steve. Uh, in Bolinas, he's largely known as the one of the editors of the Bolinas Hearsay News, which he does once a week. Um, but he has a couple of other things that he does. Uh, he is a senior staff at the San Francisco Medical Society and at Commonweal, both for the new school where he does these conversations and for the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, that partnership of 5,000 scientists and health professionals and citizens around the world who care about how toxics and other things affect our health. He's also the former director of Zen Hospice. He's a clinical ethicist and co-editor of the Cambridge Quarterly of Healthcare Ethics. He's written 100 book reviews for the San Francisco Chronicle. He's on the editorial board and sometimes editor of the Journal of Psychoactive Drugs. He is a lecturer, uh, has been a lecturer at UC Berkeley and UC San Francisco, Stanford, Harvard, and the Sorbonne. And he's a longtime uh, music journalist and MC of world music festivals, including the Sierra Nevada World Music Festival, which just took place the third week in June, where he introduced Jimmy Cliff, among others, to 4,000 uh, people who were there. And he has a, a jacket, which he was discouraged from wearing, uh, that Stuart made for him, painted for him. Uh, but apparently, Kira Epstein decided this was not the venue to, to wear his, uh, his jacket. So you'll have to find him in it another time. Um, finally, he is perhaps best known for having streaked Richard Nixon to protest the closing of a favored Southern California surf spot. And uh, his article on that appeared in Surfer Magazine with the title, Nixon Saw Me Naked. So, <laughs> so I hope now you know a little more about Steve than you knew before. And with that, Steve, I'm looking forward to your conversation with Peter. Thank you, Michael. Uh, it's been 20 years now I've been associated with Commonweal, and every time I turn down the, through the gate there from the Mesa, I say a little thanks for being able to be involved here in this place where so many great people have been and so many great uh, events and projects go. But since we started doing the uh, new school talks, I've thought of having our guest here today here, and the fact that he has a brand new book out finally provided the opportunity to do this. And just by way of introduction, I think many of you people know him, certainly know of him, and, and have seen the information that we put out about it. But from my point of view, I actually met him about a quarter of a century ago, and a mutual friend of ours who was chair of medicine at UCSF wanted to start up a new institute to do uh, biomedical ethics and explore healthcare issues in an ethical way. It was so ethical that it went out of business uh, after a while. But we were on the board together with a lot of distinguished judges, physicians, lawyers, and so forth. And I think I remember after the first time that we had a meeting where he came 
the president of one of the banks took our founder aside and said, why do we want a uh, hippie actor on this board? And once it was explained who he was, having been chairman of the California Arts Council and many other things, and then once he was at a couple of meetings where his advice and observations were uh, extremely valuable, that became clear. Um, it was interesting, too, since I have never really been too uh, cognizant of the film world and movies, I didn't see that many, that I would see people in social settings and ask him questions, and he was always very self-deprecating about, you know, what are you working on these days? And it would be, oh, Steven Spielberg, no, 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 Roman, Roman Polanski, you know, and I thought that was kind of cool. But then an essay appeared in a journal published by a mutual friend of ours, Howard Junker, called Zizzyville, which was a West Coast, or is still a West Coast literary journal. And it was a story called Carla's Story, which was actually nonfiction and was uh, a very moving story about somebody he knew for a long time. And not long after that was published, it received the Pushcart Prize. Now, the Pushcart Prize is for short fiction, short nonfiction, etc. People like Saul Bellow, Raymond Carver, K. Ryan from Marin have won this. This time, he was really excited. And he was telling, I got a push card. I mean, it was really kind of cool. I said, okay, this guy wants to be a writer, actually. And not long after that, his first book came out, Sleeping Where, Where I Fall, which um, I devoured immediately, partly because I've always been something of a student of the 60s and what it all may have meant, and partly because it was set, much of it is set locally here. And uh, I've just reread it to prepare for this in the last week. And it's, it, it's a very, it's, it's one of the best of that time. And I say that even if I didn't know him. And then, of course, that came out in 99, I believe. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the new book is out. Now, this one, uh, we did a uh, talk about that we turned into, that was turned in the cover story for the Pacific Sun, now in Zen. Um, how many people have read this? A few of you, yeah. Well, we're counting on your fading memories to make this all new again, because we're going to go through a lot of the same material, but... I'm the guy in the hat. Yeah. <laughs> and I reread... that. This was a few months ago when we did this, and I reread the book again just this week again. And I tell you, it's, it's unique in that, to me anyway, reading this, uh, the depth of... Uh, just self-revealing and exploration that goes on for somebody who has had an extremely varied, remarkable, and difficult time, starting from birth, really. So, author, actor, advocate of many great things, and as of last week, second time Emmy nominee for his narration of Ken Burns' Roosevelt, Peter Coyote, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. So you told me that writing this book and getting it out was like crapping a porcupine. <laughs> Why was that? Um, well, it took six years, and it went through three incarnations. The first book was designed to be a completely revelatory political treatise. It was going to upend the current culture of the United States. It was called Lies We Like to Believe. And I spent a year and a half in the library, and each chapter was designed to be a hickory stake 
through the heart of some fiction that we operate behind. Nuclear power, cheap, safe, and green, dead. We love our children, a review of our education system and what we subject them to, dead. Just went down, 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 a list of pet hates. And when I circulated it to my closest, most intimate circle of readers, they were, they were unanimous in their hatred for it. <laughs> and it was, it was something of a shock. And so I just decided, well, it needed another draft. And I gave it another draft, and they were unanimous in their hatred for it. And finally, my, my great friend Terry Bisson, wonderful novelist, my favorite prose writer, perhaps, next to James Salter, the late James Salter, he said, you know, we love your stories. We hate you telling us what to do. <laughs> and when I thought about it, I realized that what I'd done was I had built from my family history of Jewish communists, I'd built a little Jewish communist soapbox, and I'd climbed on it with a megaphone, and I was just haranguing my entire audience. And finally, a, a, a very smart agent, a local agent um, named Bonnie Solo, brought me down to earth with a little gentle tug, and she said, you know, you're trying to write this book to um, wipe out Rush Limbaugh and his readers. She said, you've armored yourself with all these facts and this research. She said, but they're not even going to accept your data. They're not even, <laughs> you're going to say the New York Review of Books, and they're not even going to accept that. She said, we always write books for our people, for people who see the world like we see it. And you'll find out how big your circle is when you write the book. So I went back and I looked at all this, and I realized that there was kind of a rough arc and that I could, I could address many of these political ideas through stories of teachers, mentors that I had. And so the, the arc of this book, the title of this book comes from a Dylan song, Stuck Inside of Memphis, Mobile with the Memphis Blues again. And he sings, the rain man gave me two cures and he said, jump right in. The one was Texas medicine and the other was railroad gin. And like a fool, I mixed them and they strangled up my mind and now people just get uglier and I have no sense of time. And I thought about it. Yeah, it was pretty funny. I thought about it and I thought, well, I don't know what Dylan had in mind, but to me, Texas medicine had to be peyote. And so I made it a trope for the ecstatic, the collaborative, the counterculture, the collective, the world of love. And Railroad Gin sounded like the go juice of the robber barons, men and women who compete for material wealth and status and power. So I made it a trope for the world of power. And when I was a young man until about the midpoint in my life, I thought those were the only two choices and that the trick was to get the mix right, that love without power was flaccid and helpless, and power without love was fascism. So about this book is the story of various mentors who taught me to navigate the worlds of love and power. And then about halfway through, I met Gary Snyder, who introduced me to the world of Zen practice and put sort of a tripod, a stabilizing tripod on my other two concerns. Uh, am I answering the question, or have I drifted? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. 
<laughs> me and Ramblin' Jack, you know, we yeah. do this. Ramblin' Pete. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, so so that's how it came to this. And it, that's why it was so hard. It took six years, and I just didn't wasn't sure that I could rewrite it again and until I reconceived it. And then it was really delicious. I have to think, or at least ask, that, I mean, that sounds difficult logistically, et cetera, conceptually, but that some of that porcupine difficulty must have been because you it's go... A graphic image, would yes, you it say? Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think he said crapping a porcupine backwards. I didn't know that... Or no, the wrong way. I didn't know there was a right way. I just said so, shitting a porcupine. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> But I wonder, you know, how much of the difficulty was because you covered some of the ground in your first book, but in the new one, you delve deeply into your childhood and in a difficult family where you say, a wealthy family where nobody was happy, volatile, powerful father who was often absent. And when he was there, you said it was something like rolling a hand grenade down into the living room to see if it was going to go off or not. Um, and so... There were very moving, uh, there are very moving sections in the book about trying to come to grips with that. And some of it was actually harrowing, which would now be considered abusive even, some of the treatment that you received then. So exploring that must have been difficult too. You know, it's always embarrassing when people introduce me at these things and say, (laughs) he's written two memoirs. Yeah. And I can just see the audience going, oh, my God, an actor with two books about himself. How wonderful. But actually, they weren't. This book is primarily my life was just the cord running through a number of beads that were other people and trying to get the 60s in some kind of workable, understandable order so that I could let go of it. I didn't want to be like a frat boy who peaked in college and was always looking backwards to some imagined past that got rosier and rosier. I wanted to come to terms with it, do a hard but fair appraisal before Henry Kissinger wrote his book, and then (laughs) let it go. And I didn't realize that, um, and a lot of my relationship with my dad was expressed in this, but it was not central. In the second book, he became a very uh, powerful and central figure. And one of the unintended uh, delights of this book was that I was able to reframe him. I was able to reframe a man who was um, consumed by rage and violence and quite brutal to me and um, someone with whom I'd wrestled my entire life and who died just after uh, the first glimmering of a kind of reconciliation, where he came out and visited me on a commune and saw what we were doing and tipped his hat to it. But I realized that all of the mentors of my early life were people who appreciated my father for his remarkable abilities. He was an astounding man, really. Um, He went to MIT when he was 15, He played chess every week with a world grandmaster, Edward Lasker. He and Edward left and studied the Japanese game of Go, and he was the first Caucasian awarded a Shodan certificate. Twelve guys in kimonos showed up at our house, gave him a fan. And he was was a, a polymath. He was the president of a railroad and oil company and his own brokerage company, and he introduced Charolais cattle to the United States 
in a particularly blunt way. These cattle are huge, white, majestic cows, and they were made illegal by the Hereford and Angus lobby. So he and his partner from Texas painted black spots on them and ran ran them across the Rio Grande as Holsteins. So objectively, he was an amazing man. And as a child, I was filled with respect and admiration for him, as well as fear. But the fact that he hurt me often and the fact that he didn't seem to have any time to spend with me seemed like an objective judgment on my worth. So, but what he did do, which I uncovered in the course of this book, was he made these fabulous people available to me. That he was not physically able to restrain his impatience or his temper or his fear. And a large part of his fear was based on the fact that I think he thought that I was stupid. And he was afraid that the world was going to eat me. I'm left-handed, so I'm in my right mind. He was right-handed. He had a very digital, organized, mathematical mind. He could multiply five-digit numbers in his head faster than I could type them in a calculator. And so the fact that I couldn't solve a problem like when train A leaves the station going north and meets train B, what's the conductor's name? I mean... So, and my son has that gene. My son at seven beat the number one kid in his age group in chess in competition. And this is a parenthesis, but it's an amusing parenthesis. He was playing chess with me up on the Salmon River once when he was seven and beating me very handily. And this old Russian communist psychiatrist friend of ours looked at him and he said, Nicholas, uh, you know you could beat your father. And Nicholas said, I know, I know. He said, well, if you were going to beat him, uh, how would you do it? And Nick said, he muttered off some pawn to king four, queen to six, six, and he ran off seven moves. And Murray said, well, that's right. So why don't you beat him? And he said, I'd like to make him suffer. (laughs) (laughs) So that was my dad. And I was the little kid that was walking along and I'd see this and I'd hear this and I'd read this and you'd tell me something and all of a sudden I'd have an epiphany and I would know something in three dimensions but I could never tell you how I got there. And that scared my dad to death. And his dominant objective during my childhood was to toughen me up and to prepare me for the world that he knew. He was Philadelphia Jack O'Brien's sparring partner. Jack O'Brien was a a light middleweight that would take on all comers, would fight everybody. So it was a real mismatch of people. But he presented me these people, these mentors, and I just, it liberated me from a whole bunch of uh, self-pity and uh, anger and resentment and loss. He said he he had... One of the foreman on one of your properties actually train you in hunting and fishing and mechanics and trapping and all that that served you well later. But he also was so macho. I mean, he boxed with Hemingway once and said he was such a wimp that he wouldn't read any of his books. Yeah, called him a pansy. (laughs) Called him a pansy. And when I was interested in writing and I was an English major in college, I'd come home and say something to my dad. I'm reading reading Hemingway, Dad. He's just unbelievable. He's full of shit. (laughs) 
I said, Dad, he's the, he's the, he transformed American literature. He's full of shit. I said, what are you talking about? And he told me the story about going to Bothner's gym. And George, who was his friend, another light middleweight, said, listen, this guy's here. Will you box with him? And, you know, my, my dad only had one competitive mode, which was homicide. So he got, he got Hemingway in the ring and it just decimated him and decided he was a pansy. And consequently, all his macho posing in the magazines and stuff was phony. And so how could he be an honest writer? He'd never heard of uneven development. <laughs> So you talk about the discipline. There's actually a passage in your new book that I actually wanted to, to read because it was just after you had been through one of the wrestling matches with him and had been yeah. uh, very hurt physically and psychologically because he would just dominate you and actually physically hurt you. And you said you had a watershed moment that a person cannot anticipate. In that moment, I vowed never to play. I did not understand it any more fully than that. And as a consequence, from then on, I eschewed all sports and competitive situations, any endeavor which might present me with either losing or winning, both of which were unacceptable. I rejected those two options with total commitment and with no idea what the consequences of such a deep promise might mean. I could not have understood in the moment that I would be carving a large portion of life away, the nourishment that creates bonds, friendships, and respect between men playing together, denying myself the opportunity to test myself in certain ways. As a result of this day, I do not know how to play football, baseball, basketball, tennis, soccer, or even golf. I know and care less about sports. They do not compete in my universe. As I grew older, my practices became singular, riding my bike and horse, shooting, fishing, being in the woods, daydreaming, and always reading, etc., so it was very formative to you in terms of the, it sounded like um, reacting against this abuse, if you could call it that. Um, well, you left out the catalyst in that story. So on this particular day, my dad had hurt me. I had one boxing lesson with me when I was six, and he knocked me out. And I came to in my mother's lap, and she was screaming at him, Mari, are you fucking crazy? Are you crazy? He's six years old. So there were no more boxing lessons. There were wrestling lessons, which were basically exercises in alpha dominance. He would basically hurt me and explain how to hurt other people by uh, exemplifying it. And one day he really hurt me and I went in to find my mother and I was furious and I told her, I hate daddy. I'm never going to wrestle with him again and I'm going to tell him he hurt me. And my mother grabbed me like a viper. And she was, I could see she was terrified or very moved or something. And she said, darling, you must not do that. Do you understand me? You must never do that to your father. If you say that to him, he will die. Do you understand? If you hurt his feelings, he will die. And then she said, you and I are not like him, honey. We're losers. Your dad has to be a winner. He has to win. And even at seven, six, I could feel the double bind that I was in. I could feel that I was caught between doing what my mother wanted and winning her approbation and affection or going after my self-respect. And I was just paralyzed. And I thought, if I hate losing so much, why would I want to impose that on anyone else? Why would I want to win and make someone else feel that bad. And that's why I took that vow. It came out of a, 
just kind of a, um, a stalemate, a mental paralysis. Uh, but with that, in, with that incredible energy of my mother's uh, fueling it. And you write in here that, uh, quote, it only took me 50 years to get over the need to please everybody. Yeah. And um, <coughs> you also told me, I believe, in the interview that uh, you went more, much more recently, a therapist that you see once in a while told you, you know your parents are insane, right? Yeah. They were insane, right? I like to go to checkups every couple of months. There's a wonderful therapist from Bolinas, actually, that I, I like to see. And um, we were talking once, and he said, well, you know your parents are crazy. I said, yeah, no. He said, no, no. Your parents were crazy. And he looked at me seriously, crazy. He said, it's as if God looked down and thought, how can I give this child the most difficult adolescence I could conceive? He said, your parents were crazy. And that actually helped me. I thought, oh, well, so I see it wasn't intentional. Confirmation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So among the uh, surrogate people, you had an African-American young woman who helped raise you quite a bit. Yeah, that was the and piece I was going to read at the end. Okay. Unless you want me to read no, it. No, we can. Yeah. yeah, that'd be great. And... And then, and also a flamboyant gay man who took you and a friend to Mexico, where you ended well, up. We met him in Mexico. He was yeah. working oh, for right. Bears Hopkins. But he was a friend of the parents, yeah. and that was your first serious running with the law, I believe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, this man's name was David Campbell, and he was in Martha Graham's company. He was the first overtly gay man I'd ever met, and he was fascinating. He had more uh, crayons in his box of Crayola for personal expression than anyone I had ever seen. And uh, he knew everyone. He, his roommate was Billy Holiday. He worked in the Hotel Teresa and passed himself off as black and was a bellhop in the Hotel Teresa. Came from a very wealthy banking family, the Campbell family in Hawaii. And he was a concert pianist and he was a dancer and he was a dope smoker. So when I was 17, I was coming out to California to check out the Beats and I was taking a cross-country trip, and I thought I would stop through Mexico on my way back to New Jersey. And my parents were a little nervous about the trip, but I said, no, we're going to visit David. We'll be under David's supervision. <laughs> and they said, oh, oh, okay. So I don't know what they were thinking, because <laughs> under David's supervision is an oxymoron of impossible tension. And anyway, I had months and months and months of just libertine, saturnine, drinking, whoring, running around. And then the conversation of marijuana arose. And David gave me a long, learned lecture on marijuana. And that was a good intellectual beginning. And me and my friend decided we needed a little practical experience. And we got high, and we stayed high for about seven weeks. And then I decided that I was going back to the States and this might be really good for my friends. I had lost a friend in a traffic accident. Uh, I lived on the border of New York and um, the drinking age in New York was 18 and in New Jersey was 21. So people would run up the, the coast of the Hudson to New York and drink and a couple kids actually died. So I decided to be Johnny Weedseed. And because I didn't know when I would get back to Mexico next, I thought I better 
I thought I better bring enough. So to make a long story short, I got caught at the border with eight kilos. That's 16 pounds. And if I hadn't been 17, if I'd been 18, I'd still be there. <laughs> but because I was 17 and because my dad's partner had married a Mexican woman who owned 35 miles of beachfront in Mexico and over a million acres, I got put on probation and sent home to be a, a good boy. And the judge told me to keep my nose clean. But he never said for how long. <laughs> So you, uh, back home, it was time to go to college, mm -hmm. and uh, you ended up going to Grinnell College after being rejected everywhere else you applied. Yeah, that was something I never understood. <laughs> I lived on Martha's Vineyard, and all my friends were at Harvard or at BU or in Cambridge was the locus of the, of the film scene. And after I had to repeat my junior year, and I got all A's, and everything was great, so I just assumed I was going to go to either Harvard or... The other school that really interested me was St. John's of Annapolis, 100 Great Books Program. And my guidance counselor said, no, 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 you're going to go to Grinnell. I said, no, I've grown up on a farm. I'm not going to Iowa. I'm, I'm just not doing it. She said, it'll be really good for you, this school. So I don't know what she did, but I applied to nine colleges, and I was rejected from all of them except Grinnell, which turned out to be really good for me. <laughs> You're listening to a conversation with Peter Coyote and Steve Heilig. Well, and while there, you had your first, at least first, public uh, episode of political activism. Yeah. And uh, wound up on the front page of papers for this. So tell us about that protest and winding up at the White House. Yeah, well, in 62, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis was going down and there was... Uh, nuclear nuclear issues were like an unconscious uh, dread in the culture. There were movies about it. There, you know, on the beach, there were disaster scenarios, much as they're being done today. You know, these Armageddon scenarios, and uh, a bunch of us were young young men and women, and we were nervous that we were not going to get a chance to exercise the power that we felt growing inside of us. So we quit going to classes and we formulated a strategy to go to Washington. <clears throat> we planned a three-day fast at the White House. We, uh, a, a very progressive insurance executive in uh, Des Moines gave us a brand new Chevy and three radios. And we bought, me and my friend who edited this book, Terry Bisson, we found two old $100 cars and we put them in good shape. And the 14 of us went to Washington. And we were picketing the White House. We were all dressed well and short hair and had just kind of crafted a policy statement. And Kennedy had just been savaged by the John Birch Society. And he was flying to um, Arizona when our picture appeared on the cover of the New York Times. And he decided he would rather support our brand of criticism and invited us into the White House. It had never happened before. And so Marcus Raskin, uh, a notable in his own right later on, who basically resigned as McGeorge Bundy's assistant over the Vietnam War, um, came rushing into this place where we were staying, appropriately named Gaunt House, for people who were fasting. 
So we came running into Gaunt House, and he told us, and we were invited in. We had this meeting with McGeorge Bundy in something called the Fish Room. And uh, things started off, he had a big pitcher of orange juice and stuff there, and he offered it to us, and it was really interesting. No, we'd never planned for this, but we just sat still for a second, and it was obvious that we were not going to do that, so we demurred. And then he said, well, even Gandhi drank fruit juice. This is, this is a guy that didn't like to hear no, let's put it that way. But we demurred, and then the, our spokesman for the group tapped me on the shoulder and said, why don't you speak? So we talked, and what became obvious to me was that 14 kids with signs were never going to change the course of McGeorge Bundy or the presidency. It saved me a lot of trouble. It became obvious that we were a problem for his presidency that he'd been assigned to solve and that the boat had sailed and we were no more relevant to it than people waving on the dock as the Queen Mary leaves. But what we had done in the meanwhile, before Facebook and before social media, was we began mining networks, contacting people we knew at every college, and um, getting other groups to send backups. So we used our college hub. We left two people behind at Grinnell, and we kept uh, protests in front of the White House every day for a year. And the next year in February was the first 25,000 student demonstration in history in Washington, D.C. And um, uh, Tom Hayden called the Grinnell 14 the beginning of the student peace movement. So it's a lucky, lucky break. So after school, you said, as you said, you'd already been drawn to visit San Francisco because of the beats, but then you came out here uh, drawn by acting or, you know... Drawn by a winter of three weeks of 25 below zero weather. By by a need for climate change, right? But you you wound up in San Francisco uh, doing some street theater, the famous group, now famous group that you were involved in as one of the key people was the Diggers, which you described as anarchic. West Coast community that had taken as its task the rethinking and recreation of our national culture. Um, there is actually, this is a limited edition book that I enjoy. This yeah. includes a lot of the uh, digger art and uh, the handbills that were put up all over the hay. Well, the communication company, Yeah. the first three issues of the Black Panther Party newspaper was printed in my apartment on stolen mimeograph machines. It's part of the the communications company. We all came from the San Francisco Mime Troop. Right. We were all actors. Right. And most of the models for progressive political change in the 60s were socialist or communist. And as art, I had no objection to communists or socialists. A lot of my relatives, my mother's cousin was the first man fired from the New York City school system for being a communist. And um, the luck of my family is that he sued them 28 years later and won 28 years back pay. (laughs) So, but we were artists and we didn't want to have to be constrained to doing plays about heroic bus drivers or elevator operators. We wanted to imagine a culture in which we could be authentically who we were and then to make it real by imagining it. And so the diggers created all these events that would offer people the opportunity to reconsider 
identity, being an employee, being a consumer, money, what was your relationship to stuff, who owned it, who got to distribute it. And uh, it was a pretty vital and interesting experiment. Did you consider the street theater through the Mime Troupe, et cetera, that, that this was your beginning of training, formal or otherwise, in acting? Um, no, I had been part of an, a little uh, acting company in college with a very uh, amazing um, coach, an Irishman named Ned Donahoe. And I had been part of the black turtleneck camel cigarettes crew of writers in my college. And one day this huge bearded man slouched into the chair next to me and he said, I suppose it's never occurred to you that theater is an argument of great public moment danced before an audience. <laughs> I said, no, you've got me there. I, I never thought of it that way. So he challenged me to come audition, and I auditioned for his company. And he said, well, the basketball coach never uses his second string, why should I? And he put together a little rep company, and I did four years of theater with this remarkable guy whose parents were the warders of an insane asylum. And he grew up with the inmates as his playmates. And you could stand behind him. If you were in the wings and the stage was out there, you could stand behind him watching his actors. And just by watching his body, you could understand every beat of every actor in the performance. It was astounding. So the mime troupe carried uh, political theater as far as it could go. We had this very radical show called the, the Minstrel Show, which Harry Belafonte and Nipsey Russell saw and fell in love with, and they got Dick Gregory to invite us to New York. And along the way, we were arrested many times for obscenity and lewdness. It began as an old-fashioned minstrel show, three black guys, three white guys in uh, curly Afro wigs, blackface makeup, gloves and tuxedos, and a Marlboro Man white interlocutor and it actually began like an old racist uh, minstrel show. And then pretty soon we tied up the interlocutor and the minstrels ran their own uh, Negro history, they called it, which was straight from the autobiography of Malcolm X. I directed the road company and everybody had to read that book before they could audition. So we had pushed it as far as it could go. And um, the diggers was the next step, was creating theater out in the world where nobody was in charge, a free store, free medical clinic, free bank, free food. And um, it, was, it was kind of like an interesting art experiment. Some people thought it was a model for a viable economy, which it was not. So many, many years later, last year, I organized, I found 105 of my old compañeros and compañeras, and we got together and we began chipping in, and we support about nine of our members who were indigent, you know, who were just on social security. But when I suggested that on the old Digger website, it just raised a furor. You know, the diggers don't deal in money. The diggers let their friends starve to death. I don't know what they had in mind. So I apologized. I told them I had overlooked the fact that it had become a religion. And I started a new, I just started a new website to which everyone came. So now it's called the Free Family Union, and everybody, you're not everyone, but we chip in and we continue to support uh, our brothers and sisters. 
Well, I think it's extraordinary in a way that after all this time that that has happened for some of the more needy among you. And it's actually the model that people are talking about more now that came out of the 60s was the communal model. So in a way, you have this virtual commune with that group and it's right. taking care of people. But you were, you know, the story of the hate has been told many times. You were in that. You were part of it. Things, things, got, things got, got a bit touchy there, and you fled, basically. Uh, no, we didn't flee. Well, okay, you left. We got bored of running okay. the soup kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> but you left, and there's a bustling metropolis about a dozen miles up the uh, highway here called Olima, uh, uh, and you ended up in a commune there. Um, I just think it's interesting that, you know, we've actually had a talk here in the new school about bringing that kind of model back for people as our society ages and as the systems get edgy and maybe fall apart. And so it's one of the things that the hippies, for lack of a better term, had the right idea, it seems. But you found it very difficult to sustain these uh, kind of models, as did everybody else. I ran away to one at 17 in northern New Mexico, and I well, saw... Well, we did it differently. Yeah. I mean... For instance, it seems, it seems like a no-brainer to say that if you put 30 people in a single-family house, there are going to be some problems. <laughs> so that's not a reflection on communal living. It's a reflection on the way we did it. I've just bought a little house in Sebastopol, but for a year I was looking for a place that was, might have multiple dwellings on it. So that, you know, it seems pretty critical that each household or each unit has its own hearth. And that it's easy to build a communal kitchen, a good Viking stove, a good sub-zero refrigerator can serve 20 people. One big screen TV for videotapes and a grandma guest room. And then everybody still needs their own little stove and hearth and library and privacy. So that's what we would have done. But uh, the last place I looked at was 80 acres and they would not let us erect a single extra building. So... It was not going to work. It's basically the co-housing model kind of that you're yes. talking about. Yeah. yeah. And, and what, what you said in the book about after Alima was, the, and this is the counterculture in general in a sense, the counterculture we created was neither more or less ethical, diverse, or contradictory than the majority culture. Uh, in terms yeah, of, we brought all our problems with us. Uh, I mean, one of the problems was we were so busy um, being heroes and building this vision that we neglected to actually build a life. We didn't really have very good um, vocabularies for resolving interpersonal disputes. If there's one sink and I like to wash my face in a clean sink and my brother Kent cleans the transmission in it before I wake up and I come out to a grease pit to wash my face, there's no revolutionary ideology that will allow you to resolve <laughs> that, that point. Or if I come in and my friend Vinny has decided that privacy is a bourgeois concern and taken all the bathroom doors off. <laughs> so, you know, it's like free love is great until it's your wife that doesn't come home. So there were, a lot of, there were a lot of things simmering below the surface. And when children came, children imposed an absolute order on our anarchy. If mothers were getting up at five in the morning to nurse their children, you couldn't have Wino Eddie playing the tom-tom and getting high at four o'clock. It just didn't work. 
And so when rules began to be required and order and form for the health and stability of the children, it drove a certain number of the more um, unhousebroken away. <laughs> and so gradually, and then we lost a lot of our land bases, and so people devolved into getting their own livelihoods and their own jobs, but that by no means meant that they abandoned their principles or their beliefs. They entered the world and they did the best with what they were offered. And I'll tell this story because it's such a wonderful story. Out in Wyoming in the late 70s, there was a struggle over the oil shale and the farmers and the environmentalists and the Indians were wrestling it out. And the Indians were particularly upset and they said, you know, you came here 300 years ago and you told us that we were backwards. And now you're telling us that we had it right all along and we shouldn't need money and we shouldn't need cars and we shouldn't need trucks. And they were going back and forth and back and forth. And this guy named uh, Teddy Rising Sun, who was a Cheyenne storyteller and shaman, got up and he told this great story, which is applicable to so many situations that I'm going to tell it. He said, uh, I was coming down the road in my old Chevy and I stopped to get a cup of coffee. He said, and in the old days, we liked to keep an eye on our horses. So I sat in the window where I could keep an eye on my car. He said, and I looked and I saw this little bird fluttering around the grill, fluttering and flying away and fluttering and flying away. And I thought, wow, maybe there's a teaching in that. He said, and I looked and what it was doing was it was taking dead grasshoppers out of the grill. And it was taking them up and it was feeding its babies. He said, the one thing I didn't see was I didn't see any birds saying, well, that's not how we chickadees do it. (laughs) And he said, a red-tailed hawk on the phone wire that's getting dead mice off the highway, still a hawk. And a skunk getting garbage out of your garbage pail is still a skunk. May not be as pure, but it's raising its babies and it's taking care of business. And that's how I feel about our evolution from the counterculture into the majority culture. Counterculture actually helped us back, held us back, but we didn't understand it at the time because by adhering to a style that was long-haired and ragged and totally permissive, we were armed a lot. I was a drug addict. We lost the opportunity to connect with lots of people who weren't getting bandaged where they were wounded, but they just wanted a square break from the, from the economy. They didn't want their children running around with feral children and, you know, druggies and crazy people like this. And because of our adherence to the idea of a counterculture, we lost all those people and lost the opportunity to make what would have been very useful political alliances. So in a way, I like it much better now where each of us can invisibly lean against some aspect of the culture and nobody can really single you out or tell exactly how you're protesting. Maybe you're not buying anything new. Maybe you're just buying in bulk. Maybe you're recycling. Maybe you're using, you know, uh, low energy bulbs and stuff. But everybody can make a a contribution and make it as part of a much bigger mass. And I find that interesting. And this is part of why you don't, you really don't like the the word hippie. (laughs) That was never our word. That was Herb Cain's word. And it was actually, even before that, it was Malcolm X's word for white hipsters who were, you know, oftentimes posing as more black than black people. 
And then Herb Cain coined it to infantilize us. And so a little more on what do you, if you were to pick out the most important legacies, though, what has lasted? You talk about people having private doing things that are, are worthy and good, but you know, what has lasted from that time that you think is most important that has infiltrated the, the dominant culture of the term? If you look at <clears throat> the political landscape, it's fair to critique our efforts and say we failed on almost everything. We didn't end racism. We didn't end imperialism. We didn't end free market capitalism. Um, we didn't end greed. We didn't end private property and profit. But if you look at the cultural front, we moved the needle an enormous distance. There's no place you can go today where there's not a women's movement, where there's not an organic, local, slow food movement, where there are not alternative spiritual practices, Tibetan Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, Vipassana, yoga, where there are not alternative medical practices, acupuncture, naturopathy, homeopathy, along with allopathic medicine. Um, uh, civil rights blossomed, although the hippies didn't start civil rights, we certainly responded to the moral imperative that black people demanded of us. So on those levels, the country is much changed, and it was, the, it was the digger's assertion that culture was much, much deeper than politics. When I worked for Jerry Brown, I worked for him for eight years. Sim Vanderen and I were there together. And we had this enormous success in the Arts Council. We raised the budget from $1 to $18 million a year when you include federal money. And virtually the day after Jerry was out of office, it was reversed by one man, the next governor coming in. And I realized I don't have time for that. I don't have time to give eight years to something that can be unwound. So by that time, I had begun my practice of Buddhism. And my experience has been that when people change internally, they never go back. And although it looks slow and it looks minuscule next to the kind of vacant promises of mass political action, it's actually obdurate. It only kind of goes in one direction. And so I decided to throw my energies into spiritual transformation and um, the pursuit of wisdom, which you don't have to be a Buddhist to follow. Every religion on earth has a wisdom tradition. All you have to do is admit that it's there and then get quiet enough to attend it and then pay attention and do what it says. And so that's where this book ends. That's the vow that I took in this last week-long meditation that kind of closes out the book. And so the title is actually a little apocryphal because the first two cures of love and, and power are illusory. They're not cures at all. But wisdom actually is a cure. We'll come back to the Buddhism, but you mentioned drugs. Was part, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Which was part of the, uh, the triumvirate of the time was called Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, right? Um, you wrote or told me, I can't remember which, that you had simple luck to have not died at that time. You yeah. certainly had uh, intense experience and long experience with drugs. And I'm just wondering how, 
what do you think the roots of that were? Were you coping? Were you rebelling all of that? You know, I mean, you tried everything. And well, we were talking about this at lunch, right? About addiction. And there's lots of theories abound. Um, the one that you reminded me of was a straight kind of biological propensity to be compulsive and repetitive. But I, I sort of, looking at my own life and the life of other addicts that I know, the dynamic seems to be some um, completely unacceptable thought or feeling begins to arise. And almost before it reaches consciousness, you begin a repetitive series of behaviors designed to eradicate it. Whether it's shopping, drugs, sex, gambling, whatever it may be, to keep it at bay, and that was that was sort of my own my own case. And one of the antidotes to that, after you get physically clean, is meditating, because of course you sit there and you become more and more intimately familiar with everything that comes over the spinal telephone. And you get, to, you get to watch it and get familiar with it, and you're sitting in this very stable posture, which over the years you develop great confidence in. You can entertain anything in this position. And so from that stability, very often a ligament will let go, and you'll be flooded with memories that your body stored there. Because after all, there's no file drawer in the mind marked the unconscious. I think the unconscious is the body, and that's where we put things that are too important to forget. And it takes a certain amount of coaxing and a certain amount of long-term relaxation to let those muscles and ligaments relax and disgorge their freight. So I think in my case, it was, you know, rage and shame and... Um, damage that I'd caused to other people, um, you know, uh, when people who love you hurt you, you tend to grow up thinking it's, a, it's acceptable behavior. And so hurting myself was a kind of acceptable behavior. And it took me a while to get over it. And I was maybe 75, I was 34 by the time I really stopped using drugs. On, uh, I listened to you on uh, Michael Krasny's show, and I mean, it's th that part of the cure seems to have worked because he marveled, as do I, at the in, the intricacy and the, the memory you have. He said, "You took so many drugs. How do you remember all this stuff in these books?" You know, and it's true. The detail is is quite amazing. So your memory is really, I, uh, you know, when you work on a book for six years or ten <laughs> years, it's like an invocation, yeah. and you're invoking these memories. And the deeper you go into them, the more they relax and release their secrets. And also, they were very, very vivid times. I can't remember people I met yesterday, but I can remember things that happened to me 25 years ago with great vividness. We had uh, Michael Pollan here not long ago talking in his new, he had an article in The New Yorker, and the book he's working on is about the resurgence of the study of certain drugs to actually help people. And I'm wondering, on the positive side, do you have memories or lessons that you think you got out of anything you might have Well, used? I have a lot of friends, mostly rich friends, who are flying here and there taking ayahuasca and ketamine and um, 
something else. I don't know, acid. Ibogaine. No, it's a, the, I, Ibogaine, you think? Yeah, Ibogaine. And uh, it's sort of the vogue in the IT community. But really, the problem is that drugs is like taking a helicopter to the edge of the Grand Canyon. And you get out and you see this fantastic vista. <coughs> but you came in a helicopter. And you don't know how you got there. And when you walk there, you can always get there again. Meditating is walking. And taking a drug is like taking a helicopter. So it's not that I'm judgmental about it or I think if you want to get high, get high. But all drug trips end. And the trip I'm on doesn't. And the trip that you get from a deep insight Once I said to uh, one of my Zen teachers, when I was young, because I always imagined that I'd be a novelist, I would make these lists of things that I had done for my one-day book jacket. And I was reciting this list to my, my teacher, you know, cowboy, welder, uh, automobile racer. And I was running this thing, and he, he just listened really patiently, and he said... You know, the gutters are full of men who've had lots of experiences, but you'll never find a man in the gutter who's had one experience to the depth of his being. I went, oh. So I'm kind of of that school, you know? <coughs> even, even Jack Kerouac, who wasn't a good example in his own end, but he said... Uh, when his friends, Allen Ginsberg, and those people were starting to take psychedelics, he said, enlightenment wasn't built in a day. <laughs> and uh, Ken Kesey said, the 60s aren't over till the fat lady gets high <laughs> and gets clean again. Yeah. Well, so, Mama Cass died before she could clean up. <laughs> so does that mean we're still in prison? <laughs> <laughs> so... You, were, you mentioned your 30s. You didn't really start your professional public acting career until 40, really, almost 40. Yeah, 39, uh, I got yeah. my screen actor's card. Uh, to, you had started a family, and you needed to make a living and yeah. so forth. And so well, my daughter's mother had run away. I was a single father, and uh, I was a, a drug addict, and I realized I was responsible for this kid, and if something happened to me, she'd be a ward of the state, and that was unacceptable. So I cleaned up. I had a doctor help me, one of our hippie doctors. Um, and I worked for Jerry Brown. And actually, Jerry Brown, Gary Snyder introduced me to Jerry Brown. And it turned out that all these years in the counterculture had really given me a number of skills uh, to be able to talk to anyone. If you travel around the United States with hair that you can sit on and fox toe bone earrings hanging out of your ears, you better be able to talk. <laughs> And um, I was just, I had a great success on the Arts Council, representing my fellow counselors and articulating policies. And uh, my success at that gave me the confidence to say, well, I do have this skill as an actor. Maybe I'll give myself five years to try it. Um, I'd rather do that than, and fail than die with the what ifs. And so I did, and I got lucky. It was at that time that the leading ladies of a certain age developed a strategy of wanting to be seen with older men. And that lasted for about five years before they reversed it <laughs> and decided they wanted to be desired by younger men. 
But I was in the door. But, you know, I had a good run, and I, I've done 140 movies, but... Most of them, I, really, I refer to as humping donkeys in Tijuana. Uh, it's, my kids are through school now, and they're debt-free, and I've bought two houses for two women, and I just don't need to do it. And um, I'd rather write, and I'd rather meditate and teach meditation. And so I'm moving where it's cheaper to live and um, where I can take care of my 25 fruit trees and run my little zendo. That seems much more beguiling. You're listening to a conversation with Peter Coyote and Steve Heilig. Well, you told me even when you were at the peak of your career and so forth that you never quite felt that you this was your true calling, that you were as good as some others, that you were getting roles that you want, wanted. Yeah, that's true. You know, the, the truth of it is, is that I'm not a great actor. I'm a good actor. I work hard. I don't lie. But because I started and I immediately had to make a living, I never had the chance, let's say, to do what I would have done in my 20s, go to England and go to Radha and study where the greatest English-speaking actors in the world come from. So failing that training, I, I didn't have a lot of confidence. And the truth of it is, is that in my character, I don't always have such ready, immediate access to my emotions. I remember um, my wife would say sometimes, what are you angry about, honey? And I'd say, I'm not angry. And then two days later, I'd realize that I was angry. Um, I'm sort of, I'm more closely aligned with being an observer. And um, so I was lucky to get through my career being overpaid for a good period of time. Um, but I never felt that I was in the crotch of my best ability. And I was never... I was friends with really brilliant actors, but I was not a social peer with them because I was not appearing in many A-level films. So I have the confidence when it comes to writing to sit with anyone and talk with anyone and uh, know that I'm doing the best that I can, I can do. I never quite felt that about film. Did you enjoy the process of making films. I mean, I always, yeah. my father told me an analogy about war once. He was actually in combat sometimes, but he said being in the military was great periods of utter boredom interspersed with moments of great terror. And another friend of mine said, that's what making a movie is like. Um, so <laughs> well, I was never so afraid because I didn't care that much. But I love the, um, I love the bedlam of a film set. Um, 80 people are conspiring to make this thing happen. And the film, film business kind of uh, selects out for difficult people. Uh, it's so expensive. It costs so much money to do everything that if you're the kind of person that makes difficulty or demands special attention, you're usually gone by the end of the day. So the people that you're working with are often very social and very easy to get along with. The best joke tellers in the world. And um, so I love that part of it. I found the business loathsome. Um, I found the status competitions loathsome. And what, what actually got me through it was when I was considering uh, going into the business, I, I was challenged by having been a digger and having operated, you know, anonymously and without money and for years and years, and now I was going to go into a business where my identity would be put forward, money would be a concern, 
And what actually allowed me to do that was that I was in the third year of my Zen practice or so. No, I was in the fifth or sixth year of my Zen practice. And I realized that if the world was actually um, intermixed, uh, interdependent, then any situation I found myself in would be an admixture of positive and negative valences. There was no pure place outside the world to stand. You know, people think that here's my character and it's half light and half dark. If I can just get the dark out of the way, I'll be a perfect, brilliant person, but you won't be a circle anymore. So there's no, there's no way to break it apart. So I realized that it was not the content of the film I was making that was important, but the way I was making the film. So from day one, I treated everyone identically, whether they were a PA or the star. I was the first person on the set. I was always on time. I always knew my lines. I never complained. I never got impatient. And really, every other film, someone would ask me if I had, you have some kind of religion or something? And I'd say, why? And they'd say, well, you're nice to everybody. You never get uptight. And so I got through that way. I violated my aesthetic standards left and right, but I didn't really violate my practice standards. But you did uh, attain considerable fame, really. And I always remember, it was a moment to me that kind of, it was a Zen moment for me in terms of illuminating fame. As we were having lunch over in Tiburon, I believe, and just talking about some business thing. We came out and there was a young kid following. I, I could see the guy lurking around nervously with a camera and he followed us out to our cars and we were staying there comparing our cars. We had the same car, the best, coolest car we made, which is a BMW 2002, the 1970s one, you know. Same car that Bob Marley drove. And when somebody asked Bob Marley why he drove it, he said, BMW stands for Bob Marley and the Whalers. So, <laughs> so we are standing there comparing the cars, and this kid comes up, and he says, can I take your picture? And then he graciously said, sure, go ahead. And he took the picture, and then he said, now, who are you? I know you're famous, but I have no idea who you are. There you have it. And it, it, and it was like, like a crystal illumination of the, the emptiness of fame. He yeah. just wanted the fame. He didn't know who you were or anything, but yeah. he'd seen you on a screen or something like that. It must be for somebody who is... Um, solitary in some ways and wants to be famous to be constantly being recognized. Didn't it make you self-conscious all the time? You know, I'm, I'm like a third-tier cheese ball. If I, was, if I was Brad Pitt, I used to hang around with Bob Redford when he was first doing Sundance. And, you know, people would be leaping out from behind dumpsters. We didn't know if we were being attacked or not. Most of the people that even know who I am are old enough that they're not going to embarrass themselves. And, you know, it's like I live up here for that reason. I never lived in L.A. I wanted to be in a community where the butcher would say, why'd you do that movie? I hated you in that. You were such a shithead. You know, I like that. So it's the only utility for fame is that you can use it to shine a light on causes you want to illuminate. You know, I can be celebrity bait sometime and show up at a fundraiser and it might sell five more tickets than if I hadn't been there. But, and it'll get you into any restaurant you want to get into. And you can meet anybody you want to meet. But other than that, it's not worth a tinker's dam. It's, uh, and often a pain in the ass. I'll never forget being in LA once, having this really deep wrenching fight with my wife who was sitting there with tears streaming down her face. And I look over my shoulder and there's a large woman holding a pad and a pencil going. 
and she's looking right at my wife and not seeing her. She wants my autograph, you know, and I, I said to her, said, just get out of here. You know, would your husband go up and ask his proctologist for an examination in a restaurant? Give me a break. So, you know, people get really silly, but not with me. I thought just now when I was saying that, it, when the kid asked who you were, you should have said Bob Marley. Well, I did do that to a woman once who, stopped, who stood in the street in Manhattan and said, Kevin! <laughs> and she gave me a piece of paper, so I signed my name. I knew she thought she was thinking uh, uh, Kevin Costner. So I signed my name Kevin Klein and gave it back to her. And she went... You now are uh, very recognized, and especially in this last week for the voice work. How did you get into that, and how is that? Uh, is that something you had to practice, too? I mean, everybody knows your voice. Well, uh, you know, I had no money. Uh, my friend Danny Rifkin, who lived out in Bolinas for many years, when I came back, when I lost my land, Danny gave me his, uh, his um, unemployment. Danny had learned to live on half his salary from the Grateful Dead, so that for every week he worked, he had a week off. And so he didn't need his unemployment, so he gave it to me for six months. And I had to figure out something to do. And one of the things I did was I made this comedic tape of all these different dialects and people talking about Peter Coyote. You know, I wouldn't put a woman in a room with him. He'll jump on her like a kangaroo. He's a terrible man. And I made this, all these different dialects and I passed them out to all these advertising agencies and it made people laugh. And I started getting voiceovers, just regular voiceovers. And they still, considering that for the 12 years I was in the counterculture, I never made $2,500 a year. Suddenly I was making $1,500 and $2,000 in a studio. And then when I started in the movies, um, you fall into a category of uh, celebrity voiceover, which is where you're not exactly endorsing the, the product, but people can go, who is that? Who is, is that Gene Hackman? Is that Donald? You know, and that, that really pays. And, but you even age out of that because like new art directors graduate from school and to them, I sound like grandpa and they want to find their own young kind of hacker voices. And there's a, there's a style today that I just can't do, you know? You, um, do it particularly and was just recognized for the Ken Burns work uh, you mentioned at lunch. You've got a couple more coming out and one in particular you're very proud of? Yeah, we just finished 18 hours on Vietnam and it's going to blow the roof off. I, you know, the, the Roosevelt's, I think, resonated with people because we're so hungry for honorable politicians who will look after the interests of everyday people. But it happened before my time. You know, I was born in 41. So, but Vietnam was my time. And when I started reading, it was a little chilling sometimes how quickly emotion would surface and anger and um, stuff that I knew to be true at the time and now it's, it's proved on these tapes. So we have Vietnamese and American soldiers who were fighting in the same battles against each other. And one of the things you learn is that the leaders on every side are corrupt. 
the Viet Cong, the Viet Minh were burying people alive that they didn't want to waste bullets on. And the little people in the middle, the civilians and the soldiers were paying the brunt for, I mean, we invaded their country. Let's start there. It was an invasion. But in the midst of it, when the American veterans went back to Vietnam and they relaxed with their fellow veterans, they realized they had a bond that was greater than the bond they had with their own citizens, people who'd been through these battles. And it's very moving. And there are revelations that I'm not going to give away. We have public figures saying things on tape that ought to be legally actionable if they were still alive. And I think it's going to cause a lot of furor. And Ken Burns is so fastidious that he showed it to the entire political spectrum, left and right. And everybody has concurred that he's scrupulously fair. So um, that'll be out probably in 2017. And then the next thing we're going to record is a big piece on country music. You are a big uh, fan of music since oh, yeah. birth, practically. You were you actually were doing some training as you were a kid on drums. You've been playing guitar ever since. You met Billie Holiday, as you said, yep. and many others. I saw you once at the old Sweetwater in Mill Valley doing a whole set of what you called country death music. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> Nelson, Nelson Foster, uh, Robert Aitken's Dharma heir, nicknamed my songs Country Death Rock. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think you said in the, in the Sun interview that had you had your way, you would, have, you, know, you would have believed in God if he had given you the talent to actually... Yeah, if I'd had the IQ to be a jazz musician... I would never have written a word or acted in a movie. Um, when I was 70, I took, started taking music lessons. I've been playing guitar almost 60 years, but just finger picking and three or four chord songs. And so I started studying scales and modes and started breaking down the, the fingerboard and learning how to play lead. So my, my recreation is I play an hour a day to iTunes. I find some song on iTunes, I find the key, and then I goof for an hour. And, um, but, you know, it's like breaking rocks with my head at this age to learn yourself. <laughs> but had I been, a, had I been a, able to express myself musically, precisely because it's short circuits language and words for all their beauty and all their gifts that they give us, they also impose a prison on us which is that we're stuck with the laws of grammar and syntax. We can't hold mutually contradictory ideas at the same time. And we can't directly, we can, but it takes a lot of work, experience things directly without the intermediation of words. So musicians get to do that, and it's something I still envy today. Something like analogous to some, in some ways to meditation. Well, it is a kind of meditation. I mean, it is. Mm -hmm. You know, I I went to hear uh, Ramblin' Jack the other night, you know, and he he played this song, played Don't Think Twice, It's All Right, song Dylan gave him. And it's a song I know backwards and forwards. I've heard in, you know, for 50 years. And he just played it differently. He made it his own. He informed it with his sensibility and this beautiful, easy, loping rhythm that I was trying to, figure out the finger pick on my leg while he was doing it. And, you know, that's a freedom, and it is a kind of meditation. And it's a kind of letting the captain out of the wheelhouse, letting him go out for a smoke, and connecting to the larger 
unformed, formless world of which we're all a part, always a part, and letting that run the show for a while. And that's when things get deep. He plays that on the podcast that you can listen to one of the talks in this room that we did too, beautifully. I've known Jack since I was 15 years old. Mm-hmm. Sailing in Martha's Vineyard together. I want to ask you about somebody else who was famous too. Uh, tragically, you were... Are people still interested? <laughs> oh my God, okay. All right. You, you, were, uh, you were close with Robin Williams. And you yeah. wrote something moving about him after he died last year. Yeah. And you had, in some ways, a thought on what had gone wrong that I thought was interesting. Well, um, yeah, okay. So, first of all, Robin determined that he had a very uh, serious illness that was not going to get better and that was only going to get worse. And one of his children told me that normally when they give you the medicine for this illness, and I don't remember the name, it's one of those complicated names, they give you a medicine, the the normal side effects are uh, psychological aberrations. And so what they normally do is they put you in a hospital and they titrate your dose and they find a dose that you can take. But Robin was terrified of, of doing that. So after he died, uh, and his, his son is completely convinced that he was out of his mind. He'd been out of his mind for two months before he killed himself, that, that he was really under the effects of the drugs. But one of the images that came to mind was that he had this great imagination, which was like the world's fastest, most brilliant thoroughbred but it wasn't trained. And sometimes he'd hop on it and it would take him and us to miraculous, surprising, delightful places. But because it wasn't trained, sometimes it would take him to places that he could barely survive. And that lack of, that lack of training in the end finally undid him. What failed him, I think, was his imagination itself because he couldn't think. And I think this of many suicides. It's a failure of imagination because they can't imagine the situation ever changing. They can't imagine it ever getting better. They can't, they don't want to kill themselves. They want to kill the suffering. But it feels like one admixed, you know, chocolate pudding. And so uh, I just, I wrote that because I wanted to offer something to people other than just sadness or uh, competing in the who knew Robin better category, uh, I wanted to point out the necessity of training. We all have a thoroughbred. We all, or whether we have a donkey or a thoroughbred, it doesn't matter. It needs training. And without training, it will carry us to places that we may not want to go. And we are helpless against it unless we are intimate with it and can kind of align with it and know how to deal with it. And it's something I think people overlook at their peril. We didn't grow up in a Buddhist culture. If you go to some place like Thailand, even people who don't meditate are incredibly gentle, incredibly soft, incredibly um, philosophically attuned to Buddhist practice. We don't have that. So we're making up for lost time, and I always urge people to consider that. You write very movingly in your new book about your mother's death, 
uh, was in the hospital. A lot of contradictory emotions there, of course. And you mean wanting to throw the nurse out the window? Yeah, that's the yeah. one. So that's what I was going to mention is, you know, because it's, because it's a public debate here too. I mean, for various reasons, the nurse was bad. But one of the things the nurse does in the story is offer to help your mom die quicker. And so we have a public policy debate in our state about this. It's not new, but it's come to a head again. And it's very uh, about assisted dying, physician assisted dying or others. And so her timing was clearly very bad on this, but I just wonder if you, you know, what do you think about this? this about topic? the issue? Yeah, and, and you know, the story yourself, if you want to elaborate well, on it. So uh, my mother died a week to the day after her sister. And um, I had gone to Mexico on a vacation, and the day I got there, I got a phone call from my mom saying she was having some little respiratory trouble. She was going to go to the hospital. And I said, we'll come home. She said, no, 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 don't bother, don't bother. I said, well, let me speak to the nurse. So I spoke to the nurse. The nurse said, no, she's okay, she's tired. We're going to hydrate her and blah, blah, blah. If anything happens, I'll call you. So two days later, the nurse called and said, the desk nurse called and said, you better get back here. And by the time we got back, my mom was in a coma. And I gathered my sister and my son and my daughter. And... um, It was actually ghastly. She was in bed, and about every five minutes, she would jerk up as if God's own raptor had sunk its talons in her chest and jerked her up toward the sky. And her eyes were dialed into no known frequency. I mean, she was gone, but something was like seizing her body. And I said to, there was a a young, and shoot me for noticing, very pretty nurse there. And I said... I mean, is this normal? She said, yes, yes, it happens sometimes. And I couldn't stand it. And after 10 minutes, I went searching around and I saw that the the line to her morphine drip had come off the little plastic joiner and it was puddling morphine under the desk. So I went and I took the nurse tenderly so as not to frighten her. And I showed her the, um, the join. And I said, you know, there's your normal. And so she put it back, and um, I was really angry. But I was holding on to it. And um, my mom immediately calmed down. And so she came to me about about six hours later, and she said, you know, it doesn't have to take this long. And I was kind of stupid. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, your mother's dying. It doesn't have to take this long. We can help. And this time I grabbed her by the back of the neck with my two fingers and I led her out into the hall. And I said, you know, I was a perfect prick to my mother for 30 years. She suffered with me. And the last thing I'm going to do is take one breath away from her. And if you ever mention anything like this to me, you'll be fighting off dykes in city prison in an hour. So just get back there and do what you do and don't talk to me again. And I really, I mean, I was on the verge of of physical violence. Had my mother asked to have her life terminated, I would have supported it. But my mother was unconscious. And that to me is a critical distance. I think that anyone should have the right to terminate their, their own life. I think, it's, 
I think it is a slippery slope. I think it is complex. I think you can sign your, your life over to surrogates that might decide that your being in the hospital is burning up the estate they're going to receive. There are all sorts of things that can happen. But being of sound mind and sound body, I think that, I think that people have that right. I also think that taking that right takes away your experience of your dying and you only get one shot at it. And I think I would have to be in really, really rugged shape to do that. But I don't judge people who are in such excruciating pain that that's all they can think about. Well, because in Buddhism, suicide is very much a no-no and the moment of death, at least in some forms of Buddhism, is considered extremely important. Important. The last, you know, the the closest that I can come to having any understanding of um, reincarnation, Zen people don't pay much attention to it. The Tibetans pay a lot of attention to it because they have a big real estate problem. It didn't didn't come into Tibetan Buddhism until around the 1100s, but it's a celibate community. And how are they going to decide heirs? So this notion of reincarnation became very critical and very important to keep their culture going. But the closest thing that I can see is that if your last thought could be could be um, conceived as a vibration, that every emotion has a kind of vibratory frequency, your last thought goes out into the universe as a, as a vibratory frequency. And somewhere in the universe, a sperm is about to meet an egg at that same vibratory frequency. Somebody, if you're terrified of powerlessness, there's somebody somewhere copulating that way. And maybe that energy contacts that sperm and egg. I don't know. That's the closest that I could come to making any sense of it. But in Zen practice, we concentrate on what's going on right here. Reincarnation is an interesting problem. We don't have the answer for it. Lots of people have lots of opinions. What's going on with you right here, right now? That's where we concentrate. Mm-hmm. One of the things in the Pacific Sun interview that caused a lot of uh, comments and uh, controversy even was your remarks about why you are leaving Marin now. <laughs> oh, uh, after 40-something years and uh, you, you have, are moving to Sonoma County. Why is that? Well, there's three reasons. One is if I want to stop humping donkeys in Tijuana, <laughs> I have to be able to live on my pension and my... Social Security and whatever little voiceovers I piece together. And I can't do it in Marin. I owned my house outright. I was paying $1,600 a month property taxes. I couldn't afford to have that much money tied up in a house when I needed it working for me. That was one. But 35 years ago, I was involved in a series of meetings called Take Back Our Town, where we were on 50% water rationing. And it's obviously clear that if you're on 50% water rationing, you have 100% too many people. And we began discussing things like creating a tax base so as people died, the town could buy their houses back to begin to shrink their um, footprint and make the population smaller. And we wanted to limit development. And basically what happened was the developers outspent us six to one They bribed the mayor, they bribed the city supervisors, they bribed the board of supervisors who retired mysteriously wealthy 
and they built 30 years of condominiums, each of which had two-car garages. And now, starting about two years ago, the critical mass was reached, and instead of taking 15 minutes to get to San Rafael from where I live, it takes 30 minutes. And to get from um, the new Whole Foods down on Camino Alto back to my house at three o'clock in the afternoon, you can sit there for 15 minutes. It's like being in L.A. And I just said, okay, you won. I lost. I tried my best. It's all yours. Because they've put up new traffic lights, which have completely impeded the flow of traffic. The traffic backs up on the freeway on Saturdays and Sundays. I can't get out of my house by car. And I thought, I'm going to go to some place where there's much more agricultural easement where they can't develop it. And hopefully they won't develop Sebastopol in my lifetime. But um, Mill Valley has been colonized by wealthy IT money and the 1%, and they're making it an experience at the expense of all the blue collar. I lived there 50 years. It's not like this is, I haven't seen uh, the bookend spread. And all my blue-collar friends from Mill Valley are gone. The Oliveras, who ran the 76 station, Lockwood, who ran the pharmacy, Mary, who ran the hardware store, they're all gone. And they're all replaced by imported chocolate shops and imported beige furniture shops. And it's just not how I want to live. You're listening to a conversation with Peter Coyote and Steve Heilig. The third reason? Is it what? Was that the third reason? I don't remember. Said three. Well, you did something about it was more attitudinal, I think. you were. Oh, yeah. The third one. Yeah. I was in Mill Valley, and there's a kind of entitlement that's often difficult to see. You know, people fighting to the death over the last organic heirloom tomato. <laughs> but one day I was, in the, uh, I was in the Whole Foods, and there was a young mother in front of me. She was holding a baby that was, you know, squirming like a Cairn Terrier. And her other baby had just spilled a bag of tangerines or something out of it. And she was holding the baby and she was running forward. And I ran forward to help her scoop the tangerines. And right behind her was a, you know, 30-something, I call them all Buffies. 30-something Buffy in black tights and a ponytail and a, a Patagonia parka and a, some kind of Kelly bag on her arm. And she said to this woman, excuse me. And I thought, oh, my God, that's it. I'm done. It's, it's like, I'm so out of here. So as you might guess, I still have issues with anger. And... I think it's easier to remove myself from the red meat than to just, you know, try to train myself in the midst of, you know, I'm like a wild dog in a butcher shop and that kind of stuff. Up on my road, I live, used to live up on Ethel in a one-lane road, and it was a one-lane road, <clears throat> and the old-timers were very good about waving and backing up. Somebody would back up and try to make an adjustment. Like you can always tell the old timers from the newcomers on Mount, crossing the mountain, right? The old timers pull over if you want to drive fast yeah. and the newcomers will trundle along and trundle along. There's 15 cars behind them. So this day I was on this road and this woman came screaming around the corner in a, in a Mercedes and stopped and stuck her head out the window and screamed, 
get on your own side of the road. And I said, there's only one side of the road, miss. And she started, she started screaming. So I got out and I started walking away. She said, where are you going? I said, you've gotten me too upset to drive. <laughs> anyway, you know, she had to back a hundred yards down to the driveway, you know. So, you know, the charm, some of the charm has gone off. <laughs> you've, um, you've long identified or been drawn to, it seems, to Native American issues as well. And in fact, you were renamed from Kohan to Coyote by the famous Rolling Thunder and so forth. I mean, what is, you're not Native American yourself. I'm a anyway. Jew with an animal name. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, How did that, you know? It- well, one of the things that happened was when we, when we got out on land, we, we had a commune called Black Bear that still exists up in the Trinity Siskiyou Wilderness. And you get up there, you're nine miles from the nearest store. I mean, people would have to walk out in the winter packing out kerosene drums and, you know, it's 18 miles to bring back, I forgot the sugar, honey. <laughs> so... Um, one of the things that happened was the Karak and Yurak and Hupa Indians up there really befriended us. They liked to come around. They liked to see the bare-breasted hippie women. And they would bring salmon to trade, and we would trade them elderberry wine. And I became really good friends with a bunch of them. And um, I realized that these guys were the living encyclopedias of how to live in place. If you wanted to learn how to use nature as a hardware store and a pharmacy and a furniture store, you needed to study these people. So I began making it a practice to hang around uh, reservations and to try to deal with elders. And actually, it wasn't Rolling Thunder who gave me my name. I'd had an experience on peyote when I was about 21 where um, I was my same friend again, Terry Bisson, and I were at We'd sent to Texas, and we got this big box of cactus and from Moore's Orchid Farm, sent to Grinnell. And so <laughs> there it was. What do we do with it? So looking at a box of cactus. So we went to the library. We were students. And it turned out that the Tama Indian Reservation, 30 miles from the school, had a, had a peyote cult there. So I've always been good at finding people I need. And we drove out there, and I found a guy, and we traded him half the peyote, and he told us how to take it. So we sat around, and we just kept eating buttons and eating buttons. It's like eating the moss at the bottom of a well. And uh, nothing was happening. And finally, Terry Bisson said, well, I'm going to get out of here. There's nothing happening. So he stood up, and he said, whoa. (laughs) My hands are dizzy. And no sooner did he say that than we were all gone. It was like just completely blurched. So Terry and I went outside and I said, Terry, this is really weird. I've turned into some kind of little wolf or something. I don't know what this is. I'm out of here. And I spent the night dog trotting through the cornfields of Iowa. And in the morning morning when the sun came up, I was still so whacked. I was in the cornfields, and there were all these little, well, you can't see, but this is a little coyote footprint on my ring. There were all these prints around me in the mud, and I I was looking at them thinking, did I make those? (laughs) Anyway, I I just sort of forgot about it until a couple years later, I was living with this guy named Rolling Thunder, and I was fixing his toilets and his truck and stuff to, 
I rescued his son from a cult commune. And I was just paying my freight doing that kind of stuff. And we were having a smoke one day and I told him that story. And he said, well, what are you going to do about it? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, the universe opened its mind to you. So you can treat it as a hallucination if you want. You can just, you'll stay a white man. You'll have a nice life. It'll be okay. I said, well, what's the other option? <laughs> he said, well, you could, you could treat it as a gift. And you could try to understand it and try to see what the, the message in it is. And I said, oh, okay. So I thought about it for three months. And I took the name as the, the initial step in trying to understand what it meant. And it had an immediate unintended consequence that I could never have anticipated, which is that Peter Kohan was a known quantity, known to his parents, known to his teachers, known to everybody. I was enmeshed in personal history and narratives of other people. And Peter Coyote was completely unknown. And it gave me a huge field to run on and begin to discover unexplored chambers of my psyche. And so, you know, I was 24 then, I'm 73 now. So I've been Coyote a lot longer. So when people ask me, is that your real name? I say, yeah, it's my real name, but it wasn't my born name. Just last month in the Chronicle, you wrote a little editorial about I did? Uh, your friends. Yes, you did. Oh yeah, I remember. <laughs> Facts about coyotes' misguided federal policy. You were writing about oh, yeah. actual coyotes themselves. You know, what was that about? I mean, well, the coyote's the Jew of the animal world. Since, <laughs> you think I'm kidding. Since 1920, we have gassed, poisoned, shot, and trapped something like 200 million coyotes. And we still have an agency of the federal government called Wildlife Services that's shooting and killing coyotes, lynx, coons, anything that humans consider a difficult uh, problem. Uh, terrible, with traps, with poison. They give them 1080 cyanide. They set a little trap that shoots a cartridge down the animal's throat, and then the animal dies, and then the vultures eat it, and they die, and the crows come to eat it, and they die, and the blue jays come to eat it, and they die. And Marin County actually has a pilot program which has been completely successful with all the ranchers, saves hundreds of thousands of dollars a year on non-lethal predator control. And we control coyotes with dogs, with better fences, with llamas, with all sorts of things, and we're using it as a national model to try to spread it around to get rid of wildlife services. Because all they did with all those executions is they increased the range of coyotes from the Southwest to all over the United States because when they lose pups or lose members, they breed more and they breed more heavily. And what you find is when you have a resident couple in place, they keep all the other coyotes out. And it's the wandering landless coyotes that are ones that are quicker to kill calves or kill sheep. The resident coyotes eat mice. So you have a choice. You can have 9,000 rats or you can have a pair of coyotes. <laughs> You are now, for some few years now, a Zen priest. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned that, I think, as being like a PhD that you don't have to use. <laughs> so you, you, what was the actual 
you went into a formal training program to get that. Uh, yeah, I went through a three-year training program that's kind of like the equivalent of divinity school, studying all sorts of useful stuff you need to learn, how to handle a group, how to handle money, how to handle transference, how to handle intimacy, all sorts of things that sink a lot of Zen centers. And... Um, I call it a, a PhD I don't have to use because I'm really interested in making Buddhist practice vernacular to America. Um, I, I'm not so interested in Japanese-mo, the kind of, kind of cultish imitation of Japanese culture. I mean, my teachers and my lineage are Japanese, so I have robes for certain occasions, and I wear them. But most of the time, I want to be able to talk to the mechanics and the ranch hands and the people you know, that I see in everyday life. And um, if it's too exotic, uh, they're not going to put up with it. So I'm always looking for ways to translate this practice into something that's vernacular. And that's what happened to Buddhism in every culture it came to. It started in India and it came from Hinduism and it developed from Hinduism. Then it came to China and it merged with Confucianism became something else. Then it came to Japan, and it, it merged with Shintoism, became something else. Went to Korea, went to Tibet, and merged with Ban Shamanism, became something else. Now it's in America, and if the mindfulness people don't, don't hijack it, it'll gradually turn into something else. <laughs> uh, what has that formal, what has having that PhD done for you Internally, do you feel it's very interesting? I was reading uh, a review of Philip Glass, the famous proposer. He has a, a biography out, and he's been a practitioner for many years. And he said, somebody asked him, "What has it done for you?" And he said, "It's hard to say what I have learned from this, but I have noticed a certain ease I have begun to experience in daily life. This extends not only to living, but to the subject of dying as well. More than that, I cannot say." That's pretty eloquent. Does it ring true to you? Sense of spaciousness, yeah. I mean, the nice thing about being a priest is it raises your expectations for yourself. It raises the mark you want to come up to. In two months, I'll, be, I'll receive transmission from my teacher, which is the way that Zen people become independent. Um, your teacher puts a meat thermometer in you. He looks at it. He says, you're done. And... A certain amount of training and teaching. I've just finished being the head teacher. And um, then I have a choice of how I want to manifest the Dharma. You know, will I open a Zen center? I doubt it. But I'll do something. I'll do something to keep the lineage going and the practice going. I just don't know what it is yet. And some of this lineage is through Suzuki Roshi and the San Francisco. Through Suzuki Roshi and actually through Berkeley Zen Center because when... Uh, Suzuki Roshi died, my teacher was preparing for transmission, and he didn't get transmitted from Richard Baker because of the big scandal there. And so he left and started a business, and when he went back, he received transmission from Mel Weitzman, who was transmitted by Suzuki. You said you were too close to read something yeah. for us out of the new book. I'll read, I'll read one thing. Um, I did my normal quick scan, and I noticed two people in the room of African-American lineage, which is more than most for Marin County. <laughs> so I wanted to read this about my black mother, who is 90 today, 
who took over when my mother had a nervous breakdown and liberated me from being a white man. When I was two and a half or so, my mother suffered an incapacitating breakdown and became unable to care for me and my sister. Her weight plummeted to 90 pounds and she was lobotomized by depression. She disappeared from my sight and consciousness. I don't know many details because neither she nor my father ever once discussed or alluded to it. This period, which lasted for two and a half years, remains vague to me, like observing events through dimpled glass, but it's characterized in my memory by a sense of anxiety and loss. Ruth was a shadowy, uneasy presence muffled in an impenetrable solitude. My father was gone all day. The job of caring for my sister and me fell by chance and good fortune to one of the most remarkable women I've ever known. One day shortly after my mother's breakdown, Aunt Ruth, my father's sister, approached her and said, there's a story how my Aunt Ruth met Susie in a, in a fabric shop in um, Patterson, New Jersey, and was so impressed with her behavior that she hired her on the spot. She was 16 years old, on her own, had just been fired from the army for sewing coats because they discovered her real age. So she was working for my dad's sister. One day shortly after my mother's breakdown, Aunt Ruth approached her and said, Susie, you're never going to get ahead on the $25 a week I can afford to pay you. My brother needs help. His wife is really sick, and they need someone to care for their kids. He can pay you $85 a week and give you free room and board. You'll be able to send a lot more money home. I hate for you to leave my house, but I think you should do it. It's better for you, and she'll be, he'll be good to you. And that's how Sue Howard entered my life. When she came to work for my family, Sue was at first just another in a succession of anonymous caregivers. She didn't remain anonymous for long. Her job was to care for my sister and me. There was a housekeeper who'd see to cleaning, cooking, and household chores, and a chauffeur to ferry us around. I was three when Sue moved in. My dad was gone, and when he was home, aside from mealtimes, he continued working after dinner in an upstairs office with Mrs. Whitehead, his after-hours secretary, a plump, dry woman who reminded me of a large-breasted blue serge turkey. <laughs> My mother was confined in the lock ward of her depression, removed from me as certainly as if she were encased in glass. Both of my parents were distracted and often upset. Dark moods flickered through the house like heat lightning. And adding insult to injury, my sister Muffet had recently appeared, claiming half the minimal attention previously available to me. I was not happy about it. <laughs> I was wave-tossed through these disturbing years of early childhood until Susie Howard became my emotional anchor. Before long, she had inserted herself seamlessly into our daily life, displacing the housekeeper who'd been caught stealing and dismissed and was instantly promoted from nanny to major domo. Along the way, she became my surrogate mother, a stabilizing force in my daily life and so critical to the stability and functioning of our home that our action became inconceivable. Susie Howard had burst into our troubling and unpredictable environment with the insistence of morning sun burning off frost. To a small, confused boy, she was an awesome, smiling, playful, trumpet-voiced giant, a force field of positive can-do energy, a whirlwind delicious to be swept up by. 
Once I adjusted to the shock of the freedom she displayed, in short order I was clinging to her like iron filings to a magnet. The problems that confounded me with my parents disappeared when I was with her, and consequently I chose to be with her often. For the next 10 years, Susie was the North Star around which my solar system revolved. She included in her orbit an extended family of black friends, black music, black speech, and black perspectives, a world I wanted to and was allowed to join. Sue, her boyfriend, and later her husband, Ellsworth Ozzie Nelson, and their friends, Jules Cowell, an upholsterer who, like Sue, was part Cherokee, John and Violet Ellerby, and my father's chauffeur, Melvin Christopher, whom everyone called Chris, lit up the house like flashes of black lightning. With Sue in charge, the otherwise silent days were now punctuated by music, Errol Garner, Billie Holiday, Sue herself singing, He Takes Me Off as Income Tax, along with the radio. Instead of long, quiet, dull hours alone in my room, laughter and raucous arguments made the days convulse and breathe. Susie and Jules pursued long, impossibly convoluted arguments about civil affairs, politics, and the Bible, while Ozzie mocked their seriousness by making quizzical faces that collapsed me with laughter. Ozzie's friend, John Ellerby, was like Ozzie, short and low-waisted. But where Ozzie's skin was the color of coffee with plenty of milk in it, John was inky black with an outsized head and muscles stacked along his body like cordwood. He was fascinating as a tiger, intimating danger. Life with Sue was not emotionally complex. My feelings around her were uncomplicated, usually happy and without anxiety. Black speech was a captivating new music. Its range of pitches and rhythms punctuated and underscored by expressive physical posturing and gestures cascaded through ranges of notes I had no idea were available to conversation. Expressed with the entire body, speech became a musical event, more alive than the measured cadences and utterances of my parents, white friends, and shopkeepers. I drank it in, and I must have absorbed much because I remember my mother once saying to me with a subtly critical edge, my God, darling, sometimes you sound just like a little black boy. <laughs> I knew that she was signaling disapproval, but I couldn't have cared less. If that was how Susie smoke, spoke, that was how I spoke. Black people sang, laughed, danced, argued, teased, and shouted. Everything appeared to be on the surface and transparent to me. There were no uneasy silences or fermenting emotions. When they spoke, they were loud and self-assured. Like Morris, their voices made the air vibrate. When they were quiet, they were just quiet, and I didn't fear that they might be angry and ready to explode. They introduced me to a sense of play, but most importantly, how to laugh at my own suffering. Life, with all its flowers, fruits, and brambles, bloomed in the previously sterile soil of my house. I observed in black people possibilities of being I could never have imagined and spontaneously adopted them wholeheartedly as my role models and new family as a child does without guilt, confusion, or regret. Sue brooked no arguments, but neither was she normally angry, irritable, moody, or unhappy. She had heaved the entire dead weight of our family onto her back and carried it around as if it were weightless as a sack of promises. That accomplishment alone lent substance to my conviction that she was magical. When she warned me that if I misbehaved, she would know because she could hear a mouse pissing in cotton, 
I never doubted her supernatural abilities. <laughs> Sue Howard would become my most profound early teacher, the prism through which other strata of power and the mysterious frequencies of race were made comprehensible. Under her influence, I was offered a safe perch outside white culture to view it at a remove, a life-altering perspective unappreciated at the time, but which I later came to appreciate as her most valuable gift. She had invisibly and innocently offered me the option of escaping whiteness at its root and identification with white culture and the political and extra-legal systems designed to protect and perpetuate its dominance. Whiteness is a creation of power that has little to do with being a Caucasian. Just understanding that there was a way to be outside of it and to claim common humanity than race was my first experience, unconscious though it might have been, of liberation. Peter Coyote, always a pleasure. And uh, thank, you, so thank you so much for being here. Uh, both books will be available downstairs the way you came in for signing. Our co-sponsors, Point Reyes Books, which I always call the Paris of Point Reyes Station. It is this <laughs> cultural center that has done such wonderful things. And uh, I brought you a token gift from downtown Bolinas, Cosmopolitan. Oh, better take the price tag off. <laughs> It's probably the most popular shirt sold at the surf shop. London, Paris, Rome, Belize. Oh, yeah, thanks, man. Great. You've been listening to a conversation with Peter Coyote and Steve Heilig. Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kira Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Chiani. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook.